0: We are in the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 17. We have finally moved from chapter 16, which maybe for some thought, when are we ever going to get past chapter 16? We go into chapter 17, and Jesus has some statements that he makes, and I would say that for many it's easy to separate those, and you could kind of go, oh, well, there's four different things here happening. But when you look at it as a whole, and the context of the chapter, and the disc- the things that Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples, we can see it as one section together. Um, He is regard is regarding holy living, living in the kingdom of God uh, in walking in holiness. First Peter, chapter one, verse 15 through 16 says this. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am Holy. This morning, Jesus teaches us about how we should uh, live and walk in holiness. And he addresses sinning. He addresses forgiving. He addresses believing. And he addresses serving. And all four of those areas affect our walking in holiness. And all four of those areas are to be marked by what we see in Christ. And that's a humble heart. It's the humility of Christ that we are called to have in our heart. If we're going to make any effort in walking in holiness. Therefore, the big idea is this morning, a humble heart is key to holy living in the kingdom of God. Would you look with me at verse one of chapter 17 through verse 10? And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will anyone of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he think does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Father, again, you are worthy. And we lift your name high and ask that you would give us an understanding from your word. In Jesus name. Amen. So we look at these four statements uh, that Jesus makes Uh, one of them, a statement that um, the apostles make to Jesus with his response. And the first one is the statement is about sinning. And it is in verses one and two in which Jesus is saying, woe to the tempters, woe to those who are tempting others. If you see verse one, he's speaking to his disciples. Jesus is teaching his disciples then, and he's teaching his disciples now. Therefore, as we just read the word of God, we read the words of Jesus Christ for us today as he taught his disciples. Then temptation. How many of you would say temptation is common? Anyone? Temptation is common. We uh, should not be surprised by it, but yet many times we are. Jesus himself was tempted even by Satan, yet he never sinned. And Jesus says temptations in verse 1 to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in which the apostle Paul writes about Temptation. First Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I would point out that passage that you would be reminded that temptation abounds. Temptation comes from the world. Temptation uh, to sin is always in our life. But we have the promise of God, as we just read in First Corinthians, that temptation cannot overtake us. There is no temptation that God will allow in your life that is so great that you just constantly fail to that. The problem is we still battle with the old self that is dead. Uh, That Christ makes us new in him, but we still battle with sin and with temptation. This morning, I point that out to you, but remind you that this is not what Jesus is teaching on. Yes, we need to remember that temptation cannot overcome us. And God is a wonderful God who provides a way out. But what he's addressing is you or I being the one who tempts another. And let us be clear that when he's instructing here, he's not talking about non-Christians, people who are not followers of Christ, tempting one another. He's specifically addressing followers of his Christians, disciples, and how he says, woe to them who attempt another Christian, another follower of Christ, another disciple. To sin. <clears throat> he says, Woe. And every time you see Jesus addressing and saying, Woe to someone or a group of people, or like the Pharisees, it's a call of judgment upon them. It's a very strong statement he is making. And here he says to the disciples, but woe to the one through whom they come. But Bo- woe to the one who tempts other people. <clears throat> now, again, temptation that we see in this world, a lot of it. Is coming from people who are not followers of Christ. Those who are under the rule of Satan, the temptation comes from the enemy. But again, he's speaking directly to followers of Christ and to us who are Christians today. In Luke chapter six, we saw this last year. Jesus talked about judging and he says in verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Jesus was addressing the issue of not judging other people and condemning other people. What does that have to do with us? One of the ways that Christians can tempt another Christian into sin is through the example of gossip. Maybe you have been a part of this church or a part of another church or a gathering of believers and someone begins to speak about another person in a wrong way. And what that does for many of us, we may have our guard up, but it's a temptation to join in with the gossip and to judge another person. I can't tell you how many times in the last 20 something years I've heard Christians pray information prayers. I hate information prayers because we pray in a way. It's like, um, Lord, we're thankful for Sally and we want to pray for Sally who's doing this in her life. And it's like everyone in the room was just brought into gossip. Because the temptation then is in your prayers. like, Oh, yes, Lord. Thank you that I'm not Sally. Thank you that I'm not this person over here. And judgment begins in our heart, right? Because we're human. And we need a work of God in our life to protect us from those things. Proverbs chapter six. There's a fascinating passage of scripture, which gives a good warning for us this morning. It says here's here's some things that God hates. Proverbs chapter six, verses 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And right now we're like, hey, I'm good. Doing good with those things. But look at the last one. One who sows discord among brothers. God hates that. It's an abomination. When the body of Christ begins to do things to cause other believers uh, to be tempted to join in sin. And gossip is one of those areas. Here's some other things. Actually, look first back at Luke Chapter 17, here's the seriousness of Jesus' words and a warning to those woe who tempt. It says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus says, hey, you want to know the seriousness of brothers and sisters in Christ tempting others into sin? It would be rather you die a horrible death that you take this big old stone tie it around your neck and throw yourself into the sea, which man, yeah, you die, but may not have these eternal types of consequences than you causing another person who's a follower of Christ to join you in sin against God. That's how serious Jesus is. He'd be better off if you died than tempt another person. And those are some strong words. Well, what are other ways that we do this? The word of God says to uh, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. And I would say not only with your children, but do we provoke one another in the body of Christ to anger? Do we tempt them in ways that then they would be anger and not talking about a righteous anger, but an unrighteous, a sinful type of anger? How many do we tempt and invite into sin with complaining and grumbling as soon as the service is out? Oh, man, did you hear what Pastor Paul said? That's ridiculous. You know what? They didn't have my maple bars this week. Do you know that someone took my seat where I sit in the third row on the right-hand side? You know, on the fifth, whatever. We complain in churches all the time. Oh, they, you know what? They didn't do this anymore, or they canceled my favorite program. And what we do, and we do with that, with other believers, and we complain about other people. It's not just this gossip, but it causes us all to be complaining and griping people, and it takes our eyes off of God. Don't tempt another person in those areas. I thought about also other things we could go into. Don't don't tempt another person by being lazy and inviting them to join in with your laziness. God does not call us to be lazy people, but we're to be doing work for his glory. So we must be vigilant against the sin of tempting others against the us sinning ourselves <clears throat> and Philippians chapter three gives us a, a key to understanding this Philippians, sorry, Philippians chapter two verse three through five, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, there it is. That's the key for us today. We want to walk in holiness Humility is the key. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interest to others. Are you looking out for the interest of your brother and sister in Christ? When you are ready to come before them and to speak badly about someone or to do certain things that would tempt them into sin. It says, have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus And if you read through Philippians chapter two, the key there is the example of Christ and his humility to serve us by going to the cross. And he calls for that same humility to be in the believer, in his disciples. Woe to the tempters. But with humility being the key, we can then look at verses three and four, in which Jesus makes another statement, says pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. He doesn't say pay attention to all the people around you. Yes, we are to love God and we're to love other people. But he says, pay attention to yourselves. It's the same type of a call that you see the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. It's his last moments with the elders from the church of Ephesus. And he's getting ready to leave them. And he says to them, he says, hey, pay attention, careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, all the church entrusted to you, because as soon as I leave the Apostle Paul, said to them, there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. There's going to be false teachers who are going to come in through the church. He says that type of vigilance for the elders of the church is that same type of vigilance that Jesus calls us. Pay attention to yourself. Be attentive. Bring near. Give attention is is what that word means. But to yourself, to your heart. Look at verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And we might say that's great because I sure want someone to forgive me seven times if that's what I do during the day. But how difficult is it for the believer to repeatedly forgive another person? I'd say it's a great challenge for many. Because we are impatient people. And after the third time that they've sinned against us that day, and they said, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I repent. And we say, I forgive you. And then number four time comes around. We're like ready to kick them out the door. What, Jesus? Seven times? Take a note and, and mark this. Read Matthew chapter 18 this week. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 We are also given from God's word some specific instructions for the body of Christ. Again, in Luke, Jesus isn't in the second statement. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the church, how you live and interact with one another. And here in Matthew 18, he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, here's the process. Many times we title this church discipline. And I'd say the vast majority of churches do this completely wrong because we take the word of scripture scripture. We think it says this and we do whatever. Another day, I was thinking this morning, we need to just go to Matthew 18 and spend time understanding this greater. But what Matthew 18 lays out for us in verses 15 through 20 is if your brother or sister sins against her, against you, it says you go and tell them. It doesn't say, I need to call Pastor Paul right now. Hey, uh, Pastor Paul, I just, yeah, I'm just checking in today. You need to know what's going on. I hate being put in those situations because I'm always having to ask, "Okay, did I just entertain gossip?" And so some people don't like it when I say, "Okay, hold on. Stop. Time out. Did you go and talk to that person?" "Well, not yet. You know, I thought maybe I'd get your insight, pastor. Maybe you give me a, No. Time out. The word of God's clear. You said this person sinned against you. So don't tell me anymore. Go and talk to them right now. You go in humility and you say, brother, sister, you know what? The word of God says this. You've sinned against me in this way. You need to repent. But yet we're afraid to tell people you need to repent. We think there's judgment with this. Do you know that even though it's said that passage I was reading in Luke 6, it says to judge not. There are so many passages in the New Testament for the believer that you are to judge. But you're to judge righteously. And you are to judge as Christ would judge the sinfulness of things. But here in Matthew 18, it says, go to that person, tell them a sin. And it says, if they say, you know, forgive me, just like we're here in Luke and they repent, you praise the Lord. You restored that relationship. But let's say you go to them, they say, forget you. I'm not doing anything. You didn't. I didn't do anything to you. Then it says the next step is to then go get two or three Christians. Maybe there's a leader in the church, but you go with them in love, in humility. And they also say, sister, brother, you're in sin. This is grievous sin. You need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. And if they do, then praise the Lord. Restoration is brought. And no one else in the church needs to know. Too many churches think they're doing church discipline. And then later, after they resolve it, it's like, hey, did you hear what Tom was doing? Yeah, he's good now says if they refuse that, then the third step, Matthew eighteen, it says then you tell it to the church, and this is the part where it gets really messy. Whoa, you're supposed to tell people the church? Yes, and we've gone through step one, step two, and elders in the church, pastors in the church, who stand up and say, you know what? We have been following with this person. This per- that's the proper time that you say this person's been sinned against. They've gone to that person and rejected it. These three people have gone to them and called them and said, here's the word of God. They've still rejected it. Church, you need to know now. And now is the time for you to go and call that brother and sister to repent of sins. You don't kick them out. They're just supposed to hear from you. And as a brother and sister of Christ who truly loves them, you go. And it says, if they then reject it, you treat them as a Gentile. You treat them as if they're someone who is outside of the church, someone who is not a follower of Christ. That's the proper way <clears throat> you see why we need to spend time. There's so much in the word of God that we need to devote ourselves to. And uh, we could spend days and hours. We spend all of our life focusing in on uh, the main point, though, what Jesus teaches us here in verses three and four is always be ready to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And yet I have had Christians adamantly argue with me. No, you do not know what they did to me. You have no idea. Again, he's speaking of Christians with Christians. Yes, there is non-Christians out there who sin against you greatly. And if they don't repent, there is no resolving those types of things. But there is a plan in God's word for the body of Christ. Therefore... Pastor, you have no idea what that Christian sister did to me. You don't know what that Christian brother said to me. You're called by the word of God to go to them in love and in humility. And you're called to forgive. He didn't say just seven. So it's like, hey, I got my checklist. I'm done. And Bobby is no longer going to be forgiven by me because the seven times happened. No, it was a term to say you just continue to forgive. Colossians chapter three, verses.